the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon Report Number 7, April 1st, 1966 It is important for us to face up to the growing problem of confiscation, since it is an ever-threatening fact on the modern scene. In London, England, a 10-year-old girl was taken from her mother by a juvenile court. According to the Santa Barbara New Press, March 4, 1966, quote, the child's only offense is to wipe her knife and fork with the table napkin before meals, unquote. Because the girl persisted and the headmaster barred her from, quote, the school canteen, unquote, the mother, quote, refused to send her to school, unquote. The child was then taken at once from the mother. Whether the child or mother were right or wrong is irrelevant. The central issue is the destruction by the state of a family. The normal procedure in such cases has been, quote, a small fine, unquote. In this case, the state asserted its power to declare implicitly that any resistance to its will constitutes delinquency, and therefore the home must be broken. The state thus becomes the, quote, true, unquote, parent of the child. The authority of the family is abolished by the authority of the state. Another case as the Los Angeles Times editorial for Wednesday morning, March 9, 1966, noted, quote, Last July, the Department of Interior announced plans to offer recordable contracts to Imperial Valley farmers served by the All-American Canal, under which they would be required to dispose of holdings in excess of 160 acres. Now, the Department has asked the Department of Justice to file court action to enforce that limitation, unquote. This is the most recent development in a federal program which began in 1902. Its legal history is a tangled one. Even in terms of its own laws, the federal action is illegal. The purpose of this action is in effect, quote, agrarian reform, unquote. The socialistic confiscation of private lands. Supposedly, the action is to favor small holdings, but no small form is secure if the federal power to confiscate is admitted. If this step is morally valid, then the federal government also has the right to declare that a house with more than three bedrooms or more than six rooms cannot receive power until it is, quote, shared, unquote, with someone else. The principle is exactly the same. It is theft by socialistic confiscation. The fact that the, quote, law, unquote, is used to steal only makes the act more immoral. In the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, March 1st, 1966, President Johnson's call for, quote, gun control, unquote, is reported. This attempt is to limit further the constitutional right to bear arms 
and an attack also on the right of self-defense. It is a step towards confiscation of rights, as well as of arms. The Whittier Daily News, March 9, 1966, reports Martin Luther King's confiscation or seizure of a building in Chicago. Assuming that the 81-year-old landlord, John B. Bender, who has been legally served, noticed to correct 23 building code violations, was in the wrong. King's act is still immoral. To seize a building and collect its rent is theft. What would happen if a John Birch Society leader tried to do the same? Would he be free to continue lecturing and granting interviews? But King has over a hundred union leaders assisting him in his programs, and the quote law, unquote, today is a respecter of persons. It discriminates against property and property owners. The Santa Ana Register, January 22, 1966, quote, The federal government has used $188,000 of the taxpayers' money to set up a subsidized newspaper in Willow Run, Michigan, which in the subsidized newspaper's own words was to provide honest and true reporting which the government feels of interest. Unquote. Other plans have been announced for a federal government press. Public funds are thus being used to further status control of communications. Freedom of the press is thus being destroyed. Taxation is increasingly becoming confiscation. Many people who own their homes are paying what almost amounts to a rental fee in taxes, and the end is not yet near. Confiscation in a variety of other ways is a political and economic fact or threat. It is inescapably so. Socialism offers people the promise of paradise on earth, but socialism cannot deliver on its promises because it is economically a bankrupt system. Instead of plenty, it leads to poverty. The Ukraine under the czars was, quote, the breadbasket of Europe, unquote. Today, Russia must import grain to avoid starvation. Great Britain was once a center of world commerce and a prosperous people. Socialism has made the life of the average Englishman a poor one. Socialism is a parasitic economy. It must rob, it must confiscate in order to give. It cannot create new wealth, but it destroys existing wealth. As a result, socialism steadily begins to founder and falter and move towards total collapse. When this happens, socialism is faced with a choice. Who shall survive? The people or the state? Socialism claims to seek the people's welfare, but faced with the question of survival, it sacrifices the people. For example, inflation develops and the state has a decision. Sacrifice socialism and its money management, or sacrifice the people? Stop deficit spending or control private spending by inflation, taxation, and regulation? The socialist choice has always been to sacrifice the people. But no sacrifice helps to prop up socialism more than briefly. More sacrifices are needed. Instead of admitting gross error and going out of business, socialism puts the citizens out of business. It confiscates by inflation, taxation, regulation, and finally, seizure. The citizens, private property, civil liberties, all things are steadily sacrificed to make this continuation of socialism possible. 
The promise of plenty, which seemed possible in the earlier stages of welfareism, begins to give way to the certainties of disaster. As long as it can confiscate and live, socialism will confiscate and live. This is socialism's historic answer to its economic problems, progressive confiscation. According to Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Unquote. Socialism confiscates not only man's possessions, but it strikes also at God's sovereignty over the earth. It is an attempt of men to be gods, to be the recreators of man and the earth. And God is jealous of his honor and power. The law of God's creation is thus totally against the socialist planners, and they are therefore doomed to fail. Their, quote, new order of the ages, unquote, is the repeated failure of the ages and the condemned order. Because socialism cannot confiscate God's sovereignty, it is inescapably doomed to failure and destined to collapse. We are therefore clearly living at the end of an era. Socialism is finished, and no desperate remedies will keep it alive indefinitely. It has taken the world's economy past the point of no return, and is thus headed for total disaster. What we face is the worst phase of socialist desperation to keep its failing order alive. There will thus be a difficult period of survival and then the fresh air of God's free world. We must prepare for survival and for reconstruction. Important to such a preparation is a sound Christian faith, a trust in His grace and mercy and His providential care, a use of godly wisdom and common sense and the confidence that although the times are difficult, we are on God's side, the winning side. Basic to such a preparation is the creation of Christian institutions, godly schools and colleges, and a deepening of our faith. The socialistic revolutionaries of today shout, quote, We shall overcome, unquote. But God, according to David, laughs and has them in derision, for the victory is God's, Psalm 2. Martin Luther commented on Psalm 2, quote, What a great measure of faith is necessary in order truly to believe this word. For who could have imagined that God laughed as Christ was suffering and the Jews exulting? So too, when we are oppressed, how often do we still believe that those who oppose us are being derided by God? Especially since it seems as if we were being oppressed and trodden underfoot both by God and men. We should fortify our hearts and look toward the invisible things and into the depths of the word. I also shall laugh with my God. Unquote. Chalcedon Report number 8, May 2, 1966. I have been asked to discuss two subjects in this newsletter, debt and fear. There is a connection between these two things. The world of the Bible is a very different one in many respects from the world around us, not because it represents a more, quote, primitive, unquote, culture, but because it is deliberately designed on different foundations. Debt was as important a factor in ancient culture as it is today, and a highly developed system of commercial credit existed in the major empires, Assyria and Babylon, in fact, built their empire as Rome did later, in part on the expansion of influence and power through commercial credit. 
before the Assyrian and Babylonian armies marched into an area, it was usually already heavily in debt to them, and its moral fiber was sapped through debt living. When the prophet Nahum wrote of Assyria that, quote, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven, unquote, Nahum 3.16. He used a word for merchant that meant a government agent who was a moneylender and trader. The Bible shows no trace of any system of commercial credit because its perspective on debt is that it is to be avoided and is only a recourse for emergencies and special needs. Solomon stated the biblical principle very briefly. Quote, the borrower is servant or slave to the lender, unquote. Proverbs 22.7 Debt is a form of slavery. It gives another man power over us. It involves borrowing against our future, and thus it is not to be entered into lightly. To live in terms of debt is a way of life for unbelievers, but believers have no right to mortgage their futures or their children's future. Their lives belong to God. Unbelievers cannot be asked to live in terms of this standard, since their way of life is different. Christians can therefore lend on long terms to unbelievers, but for themselves the conditions are different. Many passages deal with the subject of debt, but perhaps some of the central requirements are summed up most succinctly in Deuteronomy 15, 1-6. In the Berkeley translation, used here for clarity and modernity of language, these principles appear. First, debts by believers are not to be extended beyond the sabbatical or seventh year, and since they began after the previous sabbatical year, or for six years in essence. Quote, At the end of every seven years there must be a canceling of debts, unquote. Deuteronomy 15.1. A foreigner you may press for payment, but whatever of yours was due from a brother, an Israelite, you shall cancel, unquote. Deuteronomy 15.3. Loans to fellow believers and by-believers were thus limited to what could be payable within the six-year spans. Second, the surest way to prosperity and to the abolition of poverty is the observance of God's law in this and every other regard. Quote, Owe no man anything save to love one another, unquote. Romans 13.8 However, there should be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will abundantly bless you in the land he will give you to possess as a heritage, if you listen to the Lord your God and rightly observe all these commandments which today I am enjoining upon you. When the Lord your God blesses you as he promised you, then you shall lend to many nations, but not borrow. You shall rule many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Unquote. Deuteronomy 15, 4-6 through Third, it is thus clear that the Bible presupposes that the principle of blessing is not in any humanistic standard, but in obedience to God. We are not to move in terms of human advantage, but in terms of God's law. Thus, it is a real temptation to take advantage of inflation and buy on long terms and pay off with increasingly cheaper and more worthless money. This, of course, involves assuming that inflation will continue forever. It also involves a questionable moral premise, and finally, it involves setting aside God's law concerning debt. A Christian moves in terms of God's law, not merely when it is convenient to do so, but at all times. 
One of the reasons cited by the prophets for the Babylonian captivity was the popular disregard for these laws. As a result, when Nehemiah reestablished Jerusalem among the laws which he required the people to avoid God's judgment was the observance of the time limit on debt. Nehemiah 10.31 Another important rule, incidentally, was the prohibition of mixed marriages. Nehemiah 10.30 This law was for some time taken very seriously. In a work of Hebrew literature from the period between the Old and New Testaments, Ben Sirach wrote, quote, Do not be impoverished from feasting on borrowed money when you have nothing in your purse. Unquote. 18.33 The point of all this is that our lives must be lived in conformity to God and His Word, rather than in terms of conformity to man and man's ways. Our age is given to being group-directed, to being governed by what the group does or thinks. The Bible says, quote, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, unquote. Exodus 23.2 Moreover, quote, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe, unquote. Proverbs 29.25 The latter part of this verse can also be translated, quote, Whoever trusts in the Lord will be lifted up, unquote. Berkeley Version Moreover, our Lord declared, quote, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Unquote. Matthew ten twenty eight. A great deal of nonsense is written about fear. One man has said, quote, We have nothing to fear but fear itself, unquote, implying that fear is an evil. Fear can be good or evil, depending on what it is that we fear. We are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalms 111.10, Proverbs 1.7, etc. Solomon said, quote, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Unquote. Ecclesiastes 12.13 What is it that men usually fear? Men fear first that which they neither understand nor can control, and which threatens their existence, or else second, they fear out of a bad conscience because they are afraid of the consequences of their sin. Fear is a natural consequence of sin and of guilt. Solomon said, quote, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Unquote. Proverbs 28, 1. And in the 4th century B.C., the fables of Pilpay, it is observed that, quote, Guilty consciences always make people cowards. Unquote. Shakespeare in Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, 183, wrote, quote, Conscience doth make cowards of us all. Unquote. The other common form of fear is in the presence of a danger which we cannot understand or control. Very clearly our world today is seeing the rising power of evil men whose purpose it is to control us and to destroy us if we threaten their plans and control. It would be foolish to understate or underestimate that fact. On the other hand, we dare not overestimate that fact. The world is still totally in God's hands. It is Satanism to believe that evil governs history. In the battle against evil, the casualties are often heavy, although the victory is assured. We need to ask ourselves, 
Whom do we believe is the Lord of history? God or man? The one we fear most is the one we believe to be in control. According to the Bible, the fear of man is to be overcome by faith in God. Of the man of faith it is written, quote, He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies, unquote. Psalms 112, 7, and 8. God knows our very real fears, but He summons us to faith and to the confidence that He is God, the sovereign Lord of all history. In Revelation 21, 8, quote, The fearful and unbelieving, unquote, are numbered with the most grievous sinners. Quote, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, unquote. The word, quote, fear, unquote, is very closely related to the word, quote, worship, unquote. And this relationship is apparent in 2 Kings 17, 35, and 36, as well as in studies of worship. When we fear something, we are thus, in effect, worshiping it as either a basic or ultimate power in the universe, or as something closely related to that power. All duly constituted authorities are thus linked by the Bible to that clean fear, the fear of God and His orders of authority. Thus, when we move in terms of the fear of man, we are in effect worshiping man. When we move in terms of the fear of evil, we are in effect worshiping evil. We are to exercise godly caution and protect ourselves against evil, but the object of worship must be the triune God alone. It is significant that in the book of Acts, one of the terms for Christians or believers is, quote, one that feareth God, unquote. Those who move in terms of the holy confidence of faith are those who believe in God and obey Him. Let us believe and obey Him in matters spiritual and material, monetary and personal, so that our hearts may remain firm, fully trusting in the Lord. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus perfect sacrifice, the love He shows by His pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where He died for you and me. Praise His name.
and follow the road leading us home. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.